Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Robin. She's 45, has three kids who keep her super busy, and she works part-time. She's dealing with aches and pains all over and more constant stomach aches. Also, in the last year, she started having bladder issues. It was almost like a urinary tract infection where she would have pain, pressure, and burning, but every time she would go to the doctor and get a test, no infection was actually present. Interestingly, in the last few years is when she started to eat healthier, tried a lower grain diet, and started eating a ton more vegetables, so she could not understand why she actually felt worse. She did a few rounds of antibiotics for the UTI symptoms because the doctors didn't know what else it could be or what to give her, but it didn't help and actually just made things worse. She saw a urologist and a gastroenterologist and ran a whole slew of tests, but nothing came up except that her bladder and her intestines just seemed inflamed. Again, though, no real solution was offered and she was at a complete loss. That is when she found me. Looking at her health history and all of her symptoms together, along with the type of diet she was eating over the last few years, I sensed that it was a compound in her food that was creating this. I knew we had to put it all together and had a really good sense about what it could be and how to solve this mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about all the pain and bladder issues Robin was having. Joining me on the show today to talk more about this case is Dr. Beth O'Hara. Dr. O'Hara is a functional naturopath and the owner of MastCell360, a functional practice specializing in root cause approach to mast cell activation syndrome, histamine intolerance, and related conditions such as oxalates, mold toxicity, and chemical sensitivities. She is a research advisor for the Nutrigenetic Research Institute and also works in depth with genetic analysis. We've been planning this interview for a few months, so I am so excited to finally have you on. Dr. Beth O'Hara, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here with you too and to talk about this because, you know, this is something that gets missed all of the time. And a lot of people are dealing with oxalate issues and then all of the downstream problems that it can create. 
Right, exactly. And you know, when we think about reactions, so many people think about allergies and sensitivities that are created by different foods. And of course, that can be a big issue for some, but it's these compounds in foods that are just as problematic and create so many symptoms. And, you know, like you just mentioned, you know, one of those compounds is oxalates and it can really do quite a number on our bodies. So Beth, just to make sure that everyone is on the same page, can you first tell everyone what are oxalates? Sure. So oxalates are these structures in plants and under a microscope, they look like tiny little razor blades or shards of glass. And so this is going to be important when we're talking about symptoms that are related to remember that they are very sharp little molecules. They're microscopic, but they are in these plants to as a defense mechanism. And they're in there to keep animals like us from eating them. And there's a lot of high oxalate foods that we think of as being extremely healthy. And so these are foods like spinach and beets and Swiss chard, um, rhubarb, almonds. These are some of the really high oxalates and sweet potatoes. But also our own bodies can make oxalates as part of just our natural uh, metabolism processes and Fungal species like mold produce oxalates, and they'll produce oxalates when they're uh, when there's a mold colonization and mold toxicity in someone's body. Yeah, and it's really good to know that it can come from all of these different things, and it's not just food alone. When we look at issues with oxalates, can we go over some of the symptoms that people may be having if they have an issue with it? Sure. Now, the most well-known symptom are kidney stones. However, that's really less than 1% of all oxalate issues cause kidney stones. And so some of the most common things that are associated with elevated oxalates are fibromyalgia, joint pain and joint issues. They can cause visual problems and eye issues, can cause lung problems. So those oxalates can lodge in the lungs. A lot of association with oxalate issues and autism, also with urinary kind of issues and um, urinary pain and burning, and vulvodynia, where there's this just like burning pain in the vulva and makes it really almost impossible to have sex. And it's very uncomfortable. Um, I've had my own experience with oxalates. I was on a cane starting about age 28. So I had all of these health issues in my life that kind of snowballed. So I, I was never really well as a child. And I, I want to share just a little bit of it so people can think about how this can build in their own lives. And so I grew up in an old farmhouse that was full of toxic mold and also grew up in the country. So we were um, exposed to ticks and I had some Lyme born or tick-borne diseases like Lyme. And I was on track to go to medical school. And by the time I got through my junior year of undergrad, I just crashed and I couldn't hardly get out of bed. And I had severe muscle pain. It was just excruciating. And I knew at that point I was never going to make it through residency. If I made it through, if I could physically make it through medical school, I wouldn't make it through 80 hours a week residency. And so I had to, I had a full scholarship offer and I had to turn it down. And I ended up instead of becoming, I wanted to be a neurologist 
instead of going down that road, I had to become a chronically ill patient. And I went from practitioner to practitioner to practitioner, and nobody could figure me out. And I either was told by the best practitioners, gosh, this is more complex than I've ever dealt with, and I'm not sure what to do. And the practitioners who were either afraid or couldn't admit that they didn't know would send me away with an antipsychotic. I was working so hard on my health. And so I had cleaned up gluten and I had gotten off of dairy and I was trying really hard to eat healthy. And so I was eating lots of beets, lots of sweet potatoes, lots of almonds and walnuts I was doing, instead of wheat, tons of other grains, so quinoa and buckwheat, all these non-gluten grains. And my joints just kept getting worse and worse and worse until by the time I was 28, I would have these three to six month long bouts where my joints would be in such severe pain, I had to use a cane just to get across the room to the bathroom. And this comes from somebody who'd been fairly athletic. I would do 50-mile bike rides and three-hour yoga workouts. And I couldn't hardly even lie down on the floor just because getting down and back up was awful. And so I went from, and then I started going, went to rheumatologists and I was misdiagnosed with what they called palindromic rheumatoid arthritis. And I didn't have any rheumatoid markers, but that was the only thing that the rheumatologist knew that could possibly explain my symptoms. But what was strange was then I would have this spontaneous remission. I'd feel better, not good, but better for about four months, and then it would come again. And I started noticing this pattern of it coming in the winters. Well, that's when I started eating even more beets and spinach and, you know, those kinds Mm -hmm. of winter foods that are high in oxalate. And then I started in with the urinary pain and burning and urinary urgency and vulvodynia. And that vulvodynia is just a nightmare. Anybody that's had that knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, I have several people with that. And yeah, it's really tough. It, it is. and But I tell you, I didn't know at the time not to go off of oxalates cold turkey. But once I learned about oxalates, I'd already worked on histamines and knew I had histamine issues. And, I, you know, I had been on Plaquenil and prednisone and all this stuff. It didn't touch the joint pain, nothing, you know, nothing helped the joint pain. And so... And how did you make that link with oxalates? Well, I had seen so many practitioners. I stopped counting at 50 practitioners and I had spent $150,000 at one point. I'm way, way above that now. But um, that's when I stopped counting. And I decided that if I was going to get well, I was going to have to figure this out myself. And that's what took me back kind of full circle into healthcare education and and diving more deeply into all of it. And I stumbled upon it. Um, I was one of the very early followers of Yasmina Kellenstam. It was low histamine chef back then. Now it's healing histamine. Mm-hmm. And so she started reporting on it. And she started reporting on it. I started looking into it. This all makes sense. I didn't know to not go cold turkey on lowering those oxalates. And so I just went cold turkey. And I got super lucky that I didn't end up with a kidney stone or severe dumping. But um, I was off of that cane in two weeks. 
And I had been on on and off of a cane at that point for seven years. Wow. It was dramatic. Now, it wasn't the only piece in my health. And I had to then address the root causes of why did I have such severe oxalate issues when other people eat sweet potatoes and spinach and beets all the time and they're not struggling with them? And so then there was that layer to peel back and work on. Let's talk about that because, you know, people may look at their diet and say, okay, well, yes, I do eat a lot of oxalates, but what makes someone more prone to having actual issues with it so that the body's not processing it as well? So there's a few major things. One, there are four different types of genetic predispositions that can contribute people to being an overproducer of oxalates. And those pathways are dependent on B1 and B6. So you can have start to have issues in those pathways even without the genetic markers if there's an issue with B1 and B6. So that's, that's one kind of facet is the body's overproducing oxalates because of genetics or because of B1, B6 deficiency. Okay. Another one is if there's ex- a lot of leaky gut, anything that's causing leaky gut, so gut infections, Um, eating inflammatory foods, medications that affect the integrity of the gut barrier. If that gut is leaky, then those oxalates are going to slip through the intestinal barrier and then they get into the bloodstream. And once they're in the bloodstream, then the body is going to work very hard to tuck those oxalates away and then it gets tucked into muscles and joints and so on. And I want to come back to how it can get lodged into the bones as well. So let me, I want to remember to come back to that. Mm -hmm. So we can have gut issues from a whole number of of things. And then a big contributor, and one of the contributors in my case, was the leaky gut and gut infections that were keeping it leaky and mold toxicity. And so... If people remember when I talked about my story, I started that I grew up in this farmhouse that was full of toxic mold. We didn't know it at the time, didn't learn until years after I had moved out. Um, But I still have mold toxins in my body. So I'm in my 40s and I moved out to go to college. So you can calculate how long ago that was. And that mold, when it's colonized in the body, will keep producing oxalates. And that's often where we see really, really elevated levels of oxalates in people is when they've had mold toxicity. And when you mentioned genetic factors, are there specific SNPs that people can be aware of or certain pathways? Because a lot of people nowadays have their 23andMe and, you know, they put it through the apps like the Sterling's app or Genetic Genies. Is there anything on there that can show that there may be a genetic predisposition? Yes. So the genes to be looking at are, there's four of them. One is AGXT. That's the one most associated with kidney stones. Then there is SPP1. There is GRHPR, and there, oh, the other one is HOGA1, H-O-G-A-1. And so these contribute to one of the four different types of what's called hyperoxaluria, just meaning high oxalates. Okay. 
Makes sense. So we have the genetics, we have the deficiency in B1 and B6, we have leaky gut, gut, uh, gut infections, and then mold toxicity. So those are going to be the things that can make someone more predisposed, correct? Right. Those are the most common. Now, I wanted to go back here and touch on, we talked about symptoms. We didn't touch on a couple of other places, which is oxalates are highly associated with asthma, and they're also highly associated with thyroid issues. And what most people are going to be familiar with is osteopenia, osteoporosis. And the reason that they can cause osteopenia and osteoporosis is because those oxalates bind up your minerals, your magnesium, your calcium, and your biotin, and then it can't make it into the bones. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So there's some other issues like low stomach acid that can contribute. And we also have to think about oxalates. So anytime I see when I'm reviewing a case, I see muscle pain, joint pain, history of osteopenia or osteoporosis, right away, I'm thinking, we've got to look into oxalates for this person. And then especially if there's been a history of kidney stones. This is so interesting. And, you know, we all know how everything in the body is so related, but I think this just really shows that even more. I mean, all of these things that don't necessarily seem like they go together, you know, they do and they all, you know, one thing feeds to the next and feeds to the next, then it all kind of circles back to, you know, this potential oxalate issue. Right. And then there's also a huge link in oxalates and mast cell activation syndrome. Yeah. Let's talk about that. First, tell us what is mast cell activation syndrome? So this is a condition It's very, very common. And most people haven't heard of it because it only got a diagnosis code in 2016. So it's not really being taught in medical schools. It's kind of new on the scene in a big way, if you think about it. But it's been in research since the 1990s. Mass activation syndrome is where the immune system gets dysregulated, particularly the frontline defender cells of the immune system called the mast cells. And their job is to recognize if there's a pathogen that's come in, like a virus, a bacteria, a mold species that shouldn't be there, whether we're talking about a cut, we're talking about a, a respiratory infection, anywhere in the system, because these mast cells are all through the system. And it's their job to identify that there's a pathogen or a toxin or an injury, create an appropriate amount of inflammation and orchestrate the rest of the immune response to come in and clean up what's going on. However, when there's chronic toxicity or chronic infections, chronic things like chronic oxalate elevations, then we get those mast cells become dysregulated. And instead of shooting at the enemies, if we think of pathogens and toxins as the enemies, instead of just shooting at those and then standing down for everything that's beneficial in the body, they can't tell the difference anymore and they start shooting at things that should be um, accepted like foods. And even I have people that react to water and um, smells. People start to get sensitive to things like perfumes and smells of exhaust, all kinds of things, cooking smells even people can get sensitive to. So it develops this oversensitivity and this heightened inflammatory state and mass activation syndrome affects between 10 and 17% of the population, the general population. And that's one in 10 or even more than that. 
And uh, in the chronically ill population, it's way above 50% of people with chronic illness because of the mast cells role in all of the systems in the body and all of the infectious and toxin type of systems, then we have some involvement there. So if we have chronic inflammation in the body, we have mast cell involvement. And so then how would that relate to issues with oxalates? So what can happen is these oxalates, they stimulate this particular enzyme. And this enzyme is called NOX, N-O-X. And the job of NOX is to create certain molecules that help kill off pathogens. But then that also stimulates those mast cells. So we get this kind of thing going where the oxalates are stimulating that enzyme, which is causing more mast cell activation. And the other thing that happens is they actually create physical damage. And so as they lodge into the muscles, people remember how earlier on I said those oxalates look like little crystals of glass, or they look like little razor blades under a microscope. Well, if you think about taking little microscopic razor blades across your muscles, you're going to start to create damage. Or this is part of what causes the urinary pain is those oxalates scraping all down the urethra. And then that aggravates the mast cells because there's an injury there and they have to come in and help help with the injury. But then once they're just in a dysregulated state, they're creating more inflammation. So a lot of times people have frequent what they think are UTIs, but they come back with a negative culture or they may have some bacterial infection on that culture because there's just this constant damage to the urethra. But the underlying culprit is oxalates. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what was happening with Robin. She had so many cultures done and a lot of times she was given antibiotics by the different doctors that she saw, even without waiting for the culture, but really there was nothing there. And it was the oxalate that was creating that inflammation and damage that was causing a lot of her symptoms. Right. And so we're looking for those links. So in, in terms of unpacking this as a health mystery, do we have urinary pain, burning, UTI-like symptoms? Some other things we can look at are vertigo. So people can get this strange vertigo. And again, not everybody with oxalate issues are going to have this. I haven't had this before, but I've had a lot of people have it. And what happens is these oxalate crystals lodge inside the ear canal and it throws off the balance and people have vertigo. So there's actually a maneuver that can be done by a physical therapist to help dislodge those. And it's really helpful in vertigo. And I, there are some doctors, I know ear, nose and throat doctors that would look for crystals in the ear. Would they? Would that be the same thing as oxalate crystals or would that be something different? Yes, if they're actually checking for it, but you can't see it with a light because it's on the other side of the eardrum. I think there's a scan, right? Or that could be done. It's actually a really simple technique where you lean somebody back quickly, turn their head and look and see if their eyes start back and forth. And that's in the indicator. And then if that's positive, then there's a maneuver called the Epley maneuver that can be done. And it's another just physical maneuver to help dislodge those crystals. And people get usually pretty immediate relief. So I, I find that physical therapists often are more aware of that, maybe chiropractors. 
Um, I've had people go to ENTs and um, sometimes ENTs haven't, aren't familiar with this, but it, I think it just depends on their own individual training. And then I wanted to hit on just a few other associations in the research with oxalates. And so these are cataracts, um, certain forms of breast cancer, endometriosis, PCOS, and diverticulosis or diverticulitis. These things are also associated with oxalates. Mm, that's interesting. Diverticulitis, I could definitely see that connection. Um, and yeah, endometriosis too. Breast cancer though, that's not something that I would have thought of. Talk to me a little more about that. Um, where's How is that associated? So I believe some of the link is the damage that can occur as the oxalates lodge into the tissue. So again, those oxalates are going to get packed into the tissues and it can be an an inducer of breast cancer. So there's a research study that came out in 2015 called Oxalate Induces Breast Cancer that people can um, pull up to dig in to more if they want to take a look at that. Yeah, great. Great. That would be a great resource. Thank you. And if someone is listening to this and they're thinking, okay, I have some of these symptoms, I have some of these conditions, how do I really know? Is there a test for oxalates or is there any way that people can, you know, see if it's really an issue for them? Yes. So one, uh, I always like a few points of data because everything that we look at, every test has going to have its pros and cons, right? So the first place I like to go to is the Great Plains Organic Acid Test. And it has three markers for oxalates. The first two are glyceric and glycolic, and those are related to the human biochemical pathways involved in oxalate production. So it'll show us if somebody's having issues with, we can narrow it down to either genetics or the B1, B6 deficiency or both. And then somebody can follow that up with what's called an LDH. And that's a pretty standard blood test you can have run. And again, that's looking at the human pathways for producing oxalates. And then there's another marker on there called oxalic. And that's going to show us oxalates from overconsumption of high oxalate foods and leaky gut or increase of oxalates from mold toxicity or combination of those. And so I often have people with mast cell activation syndrome come back um, about 50 to 100 points elevated. And children on the autism spectrum, I often see them come back with, um, so our average range is going to come up. I don't have it in front of me, but generally we're looking at around um, 75 being the upper limit on that oxalic. And I've had kids in the autism spectrum come back around 400, 500. Highly, highly elevated there. Now, what about if the levels are within range? Could it still be an underlying issue? Right. That's where I wanted to go next. So one of the downsides is to that testing method is that the body tucks these oxalates into the tissue so well because oxalates are a type of poison in the body. And the reason that antifreeze is so toxic and you can't let children drink it or, you know, you don't want it sitting out where pets can get into is because it's so high in oxalates and that's how it kills animals and children and even adults. And it's from those high, high oxalates that it produces. So oxalates are a toxin in the body and the body does not want toxins 
free floating as much as possible. So we have to remember that in looking at these tests and that we, we could be showing normal range because of those oxalates aren't circulating and they're not being excreted. And so we always want to be taking a look at symptoms. And if the symptom picture is matching, then it's probably worthwhile to take some steps into lowering oxalates and see if there's some symptom relief. Now with lowering oxalates, I know when you talked about your story, you said that you reduced them and you felt better, but that's not always the case either because of this dumping phenomenon that you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what the ideal way would be to start lowering them? Just in case somebody didn't hear before, do not stop eating oxalates cold turkey. And this is because once the oxalate levels in the bloodstream start to go down, and oxalates in the gut start to come down, then the body will start to pull those oxalates out of tissues and bones and start dumping them into the bloodstream for excretion to try to get rid of them. And you don't want that to go faster than your body can keep up with the excretion. If it starts going faster than your body can keep up with, it's going to start lodging in other tissues then. So it'll circulate and lodge in other places and you can get a huge exacerbation of symptoms, and you can even get kidney stones from doing that. And there have been a lot of people who went cold turkey and got kidney stones. So I caution everybody, you want to go really slowly if you think you have an oxalate issue. So just identifying one high oxalate food to replace. So for example, if you're eating a lot of spinach and sweet potatoes and beets and almonds, don't stop them all at once. Just pick, for example, the spinach and maybe week one, eat three-fourths the spinach you normally eat and replace a fourth of it with something low oxalate like arugula. And then week two, you could go to half the spinach you normally eat and half arugula. And then you can steam arugula and it'll taste similar to spinach. And then you can go the next week to a quarter of the spinach you normally eat and three quarters arugula and then go to no spinach on the fourth week. So this is an example of how you can go. And then you'd start with another food and start, say, beets, start switching those to a different vegetable over about four weeks. People really should spend about six months to a year lowering their oxalate levels very gradually. And then there's a lot of nuances you can get into. So Epsom salt baths can help, but starting those very slowly with like a tablespoon of Epsom salts in the bath and then week by week adding an additional tablespoon and really paying attention to making sure there's no exacerbation of symptoms. And then there's other things called oxalate binders people can do where you take some magnesium and calcium with your foods and it, there's, there's quite a lot in terms of what does help people, but it has to be customized for them, really, if that makes sense. It does. It does. I mean, we are all so different. So two or three different people can have an oxalate issue. But of course, like you said, the underlying root of that could be different. And so that's why that customization is so important. Now, when you mentioned the binders, um, you're talking about calcium magnesium in the citrate form, right? Or are there other forms that can act as binders? Right. So yes, that's a great question. So calcium and magnesium citrate are typically the ones most frequently used 
And citrates help break down the oxalates. Now, if somebody has mast cell activation syndrome, and if you're not sure whether you have mast cell activation syndrome, you can go to mastcell360.com and under MCAS, take the symptom survey and see if it looks like you might have it. People that have mast cell activation syndrome can't use the citrates because they're from a fermentation process, so they're higher histamine, and they often will trigger people. And so in that case, I use things like magnesium malate, uh, or we can use the form of calcium, the calcium MCHA form, and those tend to be much better tolerated. So there's always other options. Biotin is a good oxalate binder. And so also kind of getting those on board slowly. And what they do is, remember we talked before about oxalates contribute to osteoporosis because they bind up the minerals in the bones. So then it'll be binding those minerals in the supplements you're taking instead of binding it out of your bones and out of your food. And that's what we're moving into. And that's part of a way of addressing osteopenia and supporting that bone health when there are oxalates in the system. Now, when someone has an issue with oxalates, and we talked about the underlying factors like the genetics and the nutrient deficiencies in gut, if they work with someone and they address a lot of those issues, obviously the genetics are genetics, but you know, if we address the B1 and B6 deficiency and we address some of the leaky gut and the underlying infections, do you find that those people can then tolerate more oxalates or is it a case where, you know, once you're sensitive to them, you always need to keep them really low? I think it really depends. Um, one, does this person have genetic factors? So do you know if our case, if she had any of the genetic factors? She did not. Okay. Okay. So in that case, if there are no genetic factors and mold toxicity is cleaned up and candida is addressed, so we didn't talk about candida yet, but candida feeds on oxalates. And so eating high oxalate foods makes it really hard to get rid of candida in the gut. And of course, when there's molds, you know, oftentimes there's going to be candida and it's kind of this one vicious cycle. You know, and I think it's interesting because also when people think of candida, if someone has been researching it for a while or dealing with it for a while, we think, okay, well, sugars, carbs, right? We don't always think of oxalates. So it's such an important point to remember. Thanks for mentioning that. Right. And people don't think about dark chocolate is very high oxalate. There are lots of oxalate foods, and I think it depends. You know, if somebody's super, super sensitive, then they're going to have to work on what their total oxalate amount is that they can tolerate, and it changes over time. So I find now that I tolerate more oxalates than I did before. But if I decide that I'm going to eat a half a sweet potato, my joints are going to kill me the next day. It's just not going to work, and I love sweet potatoes. But um, I, you know, I'm too sensitive to those oxalates still. So I don't know really if we get back to being super high oxalate consumers. Uh, again, it just depends on what is going on with the gut health. There's also a form of bacteria in the gut called Exalobacter formingens. That bacteria in the gut eats oxalates. And people that have a high level of that have fewer oxalate issues. I don't have hardly any that shows up on my stool testing. And so that may be one of the differences between why I still can't eat sweet potatoes, but some people can eventually get back to those foods. 
Mm-hmm. And that bacteria is considered one of the more beneficial bacteria, right? Exactly. Yeah, we definitely want that one in the system. And yeah. unfortunately, it's not one like the bifida or the lactobacillus where we could just supplement that would make it easier. Yeah, that's just the naturally existing one. Uh, I see a lot of that in, in stool tests too. I always look at that. And it is very interesting how some people have a lot and some don't. Yeah, there was a company that had patented it and was going to start um, releasing it as a prescription. And then I never heard what happened. It just kind of disappeared. So hopefully somebody will come out with a way that we can supplement that. But we can just even very, very gradually increasing oxalates over time, increase the numbers of that exalobacter for men genes and perhaps restore those, but that's got to be done really slowly and at the right time after these root causes are addressed like uh, um, mycotoxin issues and leaky gut and genetics and the B1, B6 issues. Now, what about cooking? You know, if someone was eating spinach raw versus sauteing spinach, are there any differences in the oxalate levels raw versus cooked? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of things, if you boil them, oxalates will come out of the plant into the water. Now, obviously, you wouldn't want to drink that water then. Um, This is why, have you ever heard of the plant pokeberry? No. So I'm from Western Kentucky. I grew up way out in the country out there around all the corn and the coyotes and the cows. And we have something out there called pokeberry. And pokeberry is known to be very, very poisonous. It makes these, it grows as a weed and it makes these little purple berries. And the reason it's poisonous is it's so high oxalate. But people have often eaten poke in times when food was scarce. And the way they did it was they boiled it in three to five changes of water. So they just kept boiling Mm. it, boiling it, boiling it, take all the oxalates out. Makes sense. So we can use that same technique on even things like carrots if we are super sensitive, need to get it down in carrots. Now, foods like spinach, like sweet potatoes, chard, if we've got a major oxalate issue, boiling is probably not going to get enough out unless you're going to boil it in three to five changes of water, which is a little more work than most people want to do usually. Oh, right. Well, and then taste wise, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Three three <laughs> times boiled over spinach. I don't know about that. <laughs> that doesn't sound appetizing no. to me. <laughs> yeah. So what are some of the foods that are low oxalate that you eat now and that you recommend to your patients? There are a ton. And so blueberries and raspberries, apples, Apples, pears. Um, I love arugula. That's a great low oxalate green. So are collards. Carrots are lower oxalate. There are so many foods. And a lot of it's about quantity. So celery, if you keep it to one or two stalks, will be low oxalate. But celery juice, very high oxalate. And I can't tell you how many people, when they had their case review with me and I reviewed their food diary, They were drinking celery juice, one to two cups a day. And we have this celery juice craze. And the other craze that we have is making spinach smoothies. Yes. And I see both of these in my practice. And then I'll say, well, when did you start doing that? And I'll say, oh, about three months ago. Okay. And I'll put it in their timeline. And I'll say, so let's step back. So about three months ago, this is when you started having just gradually increasing joint pain, muscle pain. They say, yeah, I think so. And we can look at, well, 
maybe it was the spinach smoothies or the celery juice that you were doing. And then I have them very gradually step that down. But to go back to some of the low oxalate foods, so even broccoli, cauliflower, all of the herbs, asparagus, of course, all types of meats and fats are low oxalate. So we're mostly going to find oxalate in vegetables and fruits. And I've got, I think this is the only low histamine, low oxalate, and low lectin list online. It's the only one that I've ever come across. Um, So this is a cross-reference list. It's based in research data. And there's lots of foods lists online that aren't very valid or, you know. Right. We find a lot like one list will say this food is high oxalate and then another list will say that it's not. And it gets very confusing. Exactly. It's so confusing. And so my list is based on the laboratory testing that's been done on oxalate foods. And then what I have on there is oxalate foods are marked with an O. And um, people can go through and they can use that. And if they're going to go low oxalate, they can use that as a way to start stepping things down for themselves. Mm -hmm. And is this list something that um, your patients have access or is it something that others can have access to through your website? No, we've got it up for everybody. So it's just right there at masshealth360.com. And then if you click on either blog or MCAS, you're going to see the low histamine foods list link. Okay, wonderful. And we'll post that in the show notes as well for everyone to see. Thank you. But yeah, that's great resource to have because it does get very confusing. And I send people, you know, my version of the list and I'll have to check out your list because it's probably even better than my list, you know, but then they start looking online like, well, your list says this and online I found that. And I'm like, I know, I know, but you know, <laughs> don't look at just everything online. I know. Well, I'd love to see your list too. Let's cross-reference. And, Definitely. Um, I'm always looking to improve my, my list. And I think what happens too, so this is also a histamine list. So it's got low histamine foods and high histamine foods. I know at least in the histamine lists online, people will just look at foods that contain histamine. They'll forget the histamine liberators. Yes. And so all these things just get left out or things that they're not histamine liberators and they're not inherently high histamine, but they deplete histamine degrading enzymes. And so this list is meant to be very comprehensive. Well, and it's good to know that even with all those things, there's still food to eat. (laughs) So that's really promising. There's still plenty of food. I tell you, I I still have to watch my weight and be careful not to overeat. And I eat all low histamine, low oxalate, low lectin, and I don't run out of things to eat. That's great. Now, what about things like beans? I know that black beans are high in oxalates, but if they were, say, like pressure cooked, would that help or would it have to be boiled and, you know, several times in different water? Yeah, good question. Um, Pressure cooking is most known to help get rid of lectins. And so we use it for that. So beans are going to have lectins and oxalates, but the lowest oxalate legume in that class are going to be red lentils. And then if you boil those red lentils in a lot of water, kind of like you would boil pasta and then drain them, that's going to get the oxalate levels down the fastest. Oh, that's great to know. Anything else that you think is important to mention? I just want to let people know that I've got a lot of their low histamine, low lectin, low oxalate recipes up on the website, especially people that are struggling with muscle activation. It could be hard to find things that hit all those categories. So everything on my website is lower oxalate. Amazing. 
um, if you go to the blog, there's a little search bar in the upper right side of that page. And then you can type in oxalate and you'll find all of the blog posts where I've written about oxalates and talked about their role in health and how they relate to things like mass activation syndrome, immune issues, and these other things we've been talking about. That's wonderful. That's such a good resource to have because there really isn't that much out there. And again, sometimes you wonder with the stuff out there, is it really true? You know, there's just a lot out there on the internet. So that's so good to have. Beth, this was so enlightening. Thank you so much for all of this information. And I think it's going to help so many people. And it's a topic that, like you mentioned earlier, it's just really not discussed nearly as much as it should be and often missed. Um, and again, for those that want to connect with you um, and contact you, where can they find you? So my website is mast, M as in Mary, A-S-T as in Tom, C-E-L-L-360.com, masthealth360.com. And tons of free resources on there for people, um, symptom survey on there, foods lists, lots of recipes. And then if they want to connect with us, a great place to go is MassCell360 on Facebook. And I do Facebook Lives every Monday. And um, people can reach out to us through there and check all the posts and the conversations happening. So thank you so much. I'm really excited that we can get this information out to people together And I love teaming up like this with practitioners to help people as much as we can. As you just heard, oxalates can create a lot of issues and so many people don't realize that they may be over-consuming them. For all of the resources that Beth and I discussed, including all of the food lists, just go to healthmysterysolve.com. You'll see it all in the show notes under episode 67. Also, the website got a well-needed facelift, so it should be easier to navigate and you guys can find everything that you need much easier now. Also, you will find all of Beth's contact information if you wanted to get in touch with her. Now, in Robin's case, I found a high level of candida, a B6 deficiency, and high oxalate markers through an organic acid test, so my suspicions were confirmed. It totally made sense because she was following the medical medium and was drinking celery juice and putting tons of spinach in her shakes and salads. Also, she was trying to lower grains, so because of that, she was eating more nuts and more nut-based products, all of which are high in oxalates. I have to tell you guys, I see this so often and things just don't work for everyone. I think it's such a testament to the fact that there's just not a one size fits all approach and we need to be mindful of what is best for our bodies and over consuming any particular food is never typically a good idea. So we started to lower the high oxalate foods in her diet, like spinach, sweet potatoes, almond products, and celery juice, but a little bit at a time while adding in some calcium magnesium citrate with her meals. At the same time, we worked on candida eradication with a natural antifungal protocol that I like to use. My favorites and go-tos are GMicrobex, FC Cytal, and Microgon, along with enzymes and probiotics. And then we use GI Revive and Enterovite to heal the gut and diversify the microbiome. Robin felt a difference in her digestion and urinary symptoms in just two weeks. Her joints took a bit longer to improve, but in about a month, she felt less pain, and in two months, her pain was about 75% better. She continued to lower oxalates over the course of six months, after which she was really in a good place. We were careful not to do it too quickly to prevent any type of oxalate dumping in her body. 
She then experimenting with eating some oxalates because she really loves sweet potatoes, and she was able to tolerate a little bit and found her threshold. Since spinach is one of the highest oxalate foods, she avoided that completely to leave a little bit more room so that she can have some more of the other oxalate foods. If Robin sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them and make sure you're subscribed to the show so this way you never miss an episode. As always, when it comes to your health issues, even if you've tried many things and seen many doctors with no changes, please don't give up. There are always other angles that you may not have considered, and my hope is that the show can provide you with many tools and ways to look at health issues that maybe you haven't been aware of. The answers really are out there, and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week on Health Mysteries Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.